Happy Father's Day, dads. We hope you have a great day. Hope you get some popcorn and some M&Ms before you leave the service. Um, For us at our house, this Father's Day is a little bit different. It's the first time in 16 years that we've not had our dad home. Um, I wanted to give you a quick update on Jeff. He is in Oklahoma City this morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jeff's wife, Christy. Um, He has been on a little bit of a sabbatical and just seeking God's face and hearing from him. Well, this morning he's in Oklahoma City at Life Church. TV with Pastor Craig Rochelle. Uh, that is the largest in America. If you've never heard of them, like 50,000 people. But we found out about a year ago, we had no idea that they were the church that fronted significant funds for us to launch this church. So he's there this morning saying thank you to them and um, letting them know what's going on with y'all. So I will let you know what's been going on with him. We left him on Monday in Colorado. And I don't know about you, but I am perfectly okay hearing God's voice in the comfort of my living room. I can do that there. Not Jeff. (laughs) He has to be cheating death in order to hear from God. So we left him on Monday. He got dropped off in the middle of the wilderness. I have received one picture from him, and they're going to show it to you this morning. Apparently, people search a lifetime to find um, these. And on his first day out, he finds the biggest sheds. I said, those aren't sheds. Those are like trees. So last night he called and I'm like, baby, have you, you know, so did you hear from God? You know, what are you hearing? That kind of thing. He said, well, put it this way. My life coach, our friend out there, um, hurt his back and had to leave him alone in the wilderness with a 70 pound backpack and everything he needs to survive. He said, I'm crossing a creek, which their creeks in Colorado are a little bit more like rivers. He said, I have my boots in one hand, my socks in the other hand, trying not to get them wet. I'm about waist deep. And all of a sudden I look up and I am eye to eye with a bear. He goes, if you don't find God eye to eye with the bear, you don't find him. So he is um, having a great time. Thank you so much for giving him an opportunity just to be able to seek God's face, literally. Um, He will be back with us soon, but he wanted me to tell you that he loves you guys. He is learning a ton and cannot wait to share all of that with you. So today we have my other favorite man with us, which is my father, Dr. Ed Heinsohn. He is the dean of religion at Liberty University. If any of you are doing Liberty Online, you've probably taken one of his classes or read one of his books. Um, He's the genius in our family. It was funny, this year my daughter was going through AP World History and she had this difficult homework and I said, baby, I'm telling you, just pick up the phone and call Papa Ed. He knows something about everything. You can quote any year and he knows what happened that year. So sure enough, she does. She comes back and she goes, you never told me that Papa was smart. I mean, (laughs) I knew he knew like Bible stuff, but he's like a genius. And then she goes, wait a minute. What happened to me? She goes, <laughs> she goes, you and Grammy diluted my genius genes, didn't you? So I love my dad more than any man on earth. He was a great dad to a little girl. They say that your view of your earthly father impacts your initial view of your heavenly father. And dad, you made it easy for me to trust in God. But the thing I'm most proud of him for and the thing I love having him come here to be a physical example and model for you, he is a first-generation Christian in his family. He comes from a long line of um, alcoholic truck drivers is how he describes it. Most of the men died in their 40s because of their lifestyles. And 
as a little boy, a new church plant like my church came into his neighborhood, invited he and his brother to church. He accepted Christ as his savior and it changed his heritage. It changed my heritage. So more than anything, I want you to see an example of somebody who gave their heart to Christ, a first generation Christian, and how it is impacting the succeeding generations. Men, you are the gatekeepers. You're the protectors. Um, you're the launch pad for your wives and for your children. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. Anything is possible when you give your heart and life to Christ. So put your hands together and welcome. We call him Papa Ed. You can call him Dr. Ed, whatever you want to call him. Dad, I love you. There. <laughs> well, it's always uh, fun for uh, uh, Donna and I to uh, be here at my church. In fact, uh, we realized on the way here we were actually here last Father's Day. So uh, it's good to be back again uh, with another Father's Day message uh, for all of you. We looked uh, a moment ago through the movies uh, at some dads that didn't exactly do the best job of things, uh, but uh, I want to take you back in time this morning, 4,000 years ago, uh, to Abraham, the ultimate father figure in the Bible, uh, and yet a father who struggles with the issue and the question of faith, ultimately to become a grand example of faith, uh, referred to many, many times in the New Testament. But Abraham starts out in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, he's wandering around uh, in the ancient world uh, in what today would be Iraq, uh, and God uh, speaks to him uh, and tells him, I want you to leave your family leave your comfort zone, and I want you to go to a place called Canaan. Now, in those days, Canaan was virtually the end of the world. It would be like God saying to you, I want you to go to Nevada or Arkansas or wherever. Uh, I want you to go to this place that you normally would not choose to go to, and when you get there, I'm going to bless you. Now, the story in Abraham's life begins in Genesis uh, chapter 12, if you want to follow along at all in a Bible or on your Bible on your phone, whatever. And at that point, it's about 2000 B.C. So it's 4,000 years ago. Now think of it. 4,000 years later, we still know who this guy was. We still know a lot about his life. The interesting thing about the Old Testament is... It tells you the real story of real people, successes and failures. We see them in their ups and in their downs. Uh, they don't try to gloss over anything. And so we discover him at this point in chapter 12. The Lord speaks to him, and the Lord said to Abram, Abram, the short form of his name, comes from the ancient uh, Hebrew and Canaanite term Abba, or father. Abram literally means great father. The problem is he doesn't have any kids. Uh, the Lord said to him, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. That nation would ultimately become the nation of Israel. And then he says, and I will make your name great. Well, we still remember his name. 4,000 years later. Think if 
your descendants remembered who you were 4,000 years from now. And then he says, and I'll make you a blessing, and I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and in you all people on earth will be blessed. Now that's called by biblical scholars the Abrahamic blessing. Abraham, great father, trust me, leave ancient Sumeria, ancient Iraq, which was the cradle of civilization in those days, go to this obscure outpost to the land of Canaan, and there I'll make of you a great nation. Eventually the land would bear the name of Israel. I'll make of you a great name, still remembered 4,000 years later, and I'll make you a blessing to everybody on earth. How? Through his descendant, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a descendant of this man. When you read the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and it traces the line of Christ right back to this guy. Abram believes God. He picks up his wife, Sarah, uh, some friends and a couple of relatives, and they head off to the land of Canaan. Ten years later, he's become wealthy, prosperous. He's a rich Bedouin, if you will, living in tents. He has 400 men working for him. He has a large herd of cattle and sheep, but he still has no children. So 10 years later, in chapter 15, he meets with God, and in the 15th chapter he says, God, I've been here all these years with no children, so perhaps you want me to adopt my servant Eleazar from Damascus to be my son. He'll be my heir. Now, in the ancient world, if you did not have a legal child of your own, a physical child of your own, you adopted your chief servant, and that's what he's suggesting. God speaks to him in that chapter and says, no, don't adopt it. God's not against adoption because he refers to us believers as being adopted into the family of God spiritually. But for Abram, he didn't want him to adopt the servant. He wanted him to have a child of his own. And in chapter 15, verse 6, he believes God, he trusts the promise of God, and God credits to him righteousness as a response to his faith. Here's a man who's an example of faith. Trust God, believe God, leave your comfort zone, go to this obscure place, I'll keep my promise to you. And in the story, God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. I'll keep the promise. But 10 years later, no kids. What do you want me to do? Trust me. That's what I want you to do. When you don't see your way clearly, keep trusting me. I will keep the promise. Problem was, he went home. Sarah wasn't there. She didn't hear the promise. And uh, in essence, she says to him in the 16th chapter of Genesis, uh, how was your meeting with God? It was great. Did you adopt the servant? No. Why? God told me I don't need to adopt the servant. I would have a child of my own. Your own, maybe, but not my own, she says. She puts reason above revelation. I'm getting too old to have a child. It's not reasonable to think you would have the child by me. We need to find a surrogate mother. Now, in those days, if you didn't have a child of your own, you could adopt your servant or you could have a child by a servant girl. Now, it wasn't God's plan, 
but it was part of their culture. So Sarah suggests, why don't you have the child by Hagar, the servant girl? And Abraham, in spite of his faith, gives in to Sarah's suggestion with the attitude of, well, what could go wrong? Uh, And 4,000 years later, we're still asking, what went wrong? Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. Later, Sarah will get pregnant with Isaac, the father of the Jews. You want to know why there's an Arab-Israeli conflict in the Middle East? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It goes all the way back 4,000 years ago. It goes all the way back to one husband making a wrong choice. Every time you make a wrong choice and you say to yourself, ah, it's not that big of a deal. No, it may be such a big deal that it affects everybody in your line of descendants for years to come. He made the wrong choice. Now, God intervened. God said, I'll bless Ishmael. It's not his fault. He was born into this situation. I'll make of him a great people, etc. But my plan is for you to have a child by your wife, Sarah. God was deliberately waiting till she had gone through a change of life. She's already gone through menopause. She cannot physically get pregnant. God's going to intervene with a miraculous conception because she's going to be the ancestral mother of the line of Jesus who's also going to have a miracle conception, a miracle virginal conception, a virgin birth. God's going to start the line of the Messiah, Jesus, with a miracle birth because He's going to end the line with a miracle birth. There was a reason why God was waiting. But sometimes when we're the one on the end of wait and trust me, we get in a hurry. We want to run ahead of God. And God is saying, no, trust my timing. They ran ahead of God and Finally, God had to speak to them again, and ten more years went by, and God said, "Uh, I I did intend for you to have the child by Sarah, your wife, hello, uh, and that was my plan, and she's still going to have a baby. And this time, instead of believing God, he laughs at God, like, yeah, you got to be kidding. I'm 99. The old lady's 90. I'm nearly 100. She's 90. Now, 90 back then, she was going to live to be 137. It'd be like a 55 or 60-year-old woman getting pregnant today. It happens occasionally, and you're not laughing uh, when it happens. Uh, It's a real shock. He laughs at God. Sarah laughs at God. So God says, all right, I tell you what. You think it's funny? We're going to name the kid Laughter. We're going to name him funny boy. So every time you call funny for dinner, uh, you'll remember that you're laughing with me, not at me. You laughed at the promise of God. Now you're going to laugh for joy with the fulfillment of it. So as the story unfolds, the family includes Abram, great father, whose name is then changed to Abraham, Abraham, father of a multitude. He's now going to have two kids. Uh, And uh, you've got Sarah, the wife, princess, and then you have Ishmael, who becomes the father of the Arab peoples, and 
he's now a teenager, and you have Isaac, laughter, funny boy. Uh, the story reaches its apex in chapter 21. If you have your Bible, turn there as well. Genesis chapter 21. It's in this passage that the Bible says, And the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as He said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He promised. Keyword: God is keeping the promise. Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the very time God had promised him. God set the date, God set the time, and at that very time, the child was born. Uh, and when Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him, and Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. God stepped in, miraculously reversed the aging process, and allows her to miraculously conceive this child. Now, if you're reading the book of Genesis, you get caught up in this story. It's a story about a family that desperately wants a child, that desperately wants a heritage, uh, but they don't have any kids. Finally, they have the child, but the wrong way. Uh, and that's not the child that God has promised. That's not the miracle-born child. God blesses the child, and eventually Hagar and Ishmael leave. The story then centers around Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. Time passes. About 20 years goes by. And the big test comes when you come to chapter 22. They had to, by then, be thrilled with this kid. There now, Abraham would have been about 120. Uh, Sarah would have been, by now, about 110. Now, she's going to live to be 137. There's no genetic breakdown in that early human race. People lived a lot longer than they do today. But as the clock is ticking, time is moving on, the big test comes in chapter 22. Uh, the Bible says, some time later. We know from the chronology of the Old Testament, it's about 20 years later that God tested Abraham and put him to the test. The King James Version translates it uh, uh, that God tempts him, but it's not a temptation to do wrong. It's a test to see if he will do right. Now, remember, for all these years of his life, trust God, believe God, God will give you the child, God will give you the child, not the servant, not Ishmael, this child, funny boy himself, laughter. And then God says, take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there back to me. Now, that's contrary to the nature of God. The Bible is against child sacrifice. In the law of Moses later, it's outlawed in the nation of Israel. But the test was, do you trust the promiser more than the promise? The blesser more than the blessing? We beg God to answer our prayers and to bless our lives, and we get so focused on the joy of the blessing that sometimes we forget all about Him. He puts him to the test. He said to him, verse 2, Take your son, your only 
son, the only son of the promise, the only son of the covenant arrangement. Take him to the place that I will show you, to the region of Moriah, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, in the story, Isaac becomes a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. Isaac is going to end up carrying the wood of his sacrifice to the mountain, potentially of his death. 2,000 years later, Jesus will carry the wood of the cross to this same place. Golgotha is part of the outcropping of Mount Moriah. Jesus will fulfill what Isaac was only a picture of. Now, God does not really intend for Isaac to die. He's testing the faith of Abraham. But when our faith is put to the test, it seems like the ultimate for us. It seems like, how in the world can I believe God for this moment? It looks like everything that I've trusted Him for is coming to an end. They arrive at this place. Mount Moriah is where later the two Jewish temples would be built. The temple built by Solomon, later destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple built by Zerubbabel, expanded by King Herod, later destroyed by the Romans. Today on that spot, the Dome of the Rock sits there, an Islamic shrine on the same place. People always want to know, what's inside the Dome of the Rock? And the answer is real simple, a rock. Ah, that's the whole point of it. There's nothing in there. There are no seats. There are no chairs. Muslims put the prayer rug on the floor, uh, and they pray in there, but it's built over the rock, the rock where the temple once sat, where the altar of sacrifice once sat. That same place is the place that Abraham goes, taking Isaac with him, but notice the response of his faith. You get there, and he says to the servants, look at verse 3, early in the morning, Abraham got up. Old people get up early. He saddled the donkey, and he took two servants with him and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, so he's still a tough old guy. He chopped his own wood. Uh, He got to the place the Lord told him about, and on the third day, He looked up and saw the place, and he said to the servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and we will come back to you. Here's the response of the triumph of faith in the story. Go from the test. Do you believe the promiser? Will you trust me? even with your own child. And notice what Abraham says to the servants. We're going to go over there and worship. So he's leading the family in worship. And we will come back. Well, if he sacrifices him, a burnt offering, you normally take a lamb, slit its throat quickly, kill it. You don't torture it. Shed the blood. And then they take a fire and put it under the carcass and burn the whole thing up to God, I'm surrendering everything back to you. If he does that to Isaac, there is no future. We're not going to come back. But I and the boy will 
return. Why? He's convinced God cannot let this kid die. God has to intervene. God is either going to spare him or raise him. God will keep the promise. Now, if you read the whole story of Abraham, this was not an easy conclusion for him to come to. He has struggled for years with the promise, for years waiting on the promise, for years trusting God with the promise. But now, as a mature adult man, in his older years, he realizes, I can trust God even with the ultimate. I and the boy will return. The second statement of faith comes as they're walking up the mountain. Isaac spoke up in verse 7 and said, Father, you've got fire and the wood and a knife, but where's the lamb? Bob, you're getting old. You, you forgot the lamb. And Abraham looks at Isaac and says, The Lord himself, God himself, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Second statement of faith. God will provide the lamb. Now, the symbol of the lamb becomes a picture of Christ throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, every time you sinned, you had to sacrifice a lamb. You had to lay your hands on the head of the animal, confess your sins. Guilty, I did it. Yelled at my wife, beat the dog, kicked the cat, uh, lost my temper, whatever, whatever. Guilty and the animal died. To convince people sin is serious, sin has consequences, sin will cost you. In the New Testament, Jesus takes the place of the Lamb. Jesus dies for our sins. He becomes the sacrifice on the cross in our place. He's the one who dies for us. That's why John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not going to die as a martyr simply or as a a victim. He's going to die as a substitute in our place. Just as the Lamb substituted for people in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, Christ becomes the substitute. He takes our sin upon Himself. He dies in our place, but He rises from the dead. He's the Lamb of God. Thirty times in the book of Revelation... It uses the symbol, the Lamb, to refer to Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who ultimately triumphs as the King of Kings. But they don't know that yet. This is 2,000 years before the time of Christ. Abraham is walking to the mountain with two words of faith ringing in his heart. The boy and I will return. God will provide the Lamb. Uh, The term... In Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Uh, in Hebrew, you'd say it Yahweh Yireh. The Lord Himself will provide. He'll provide a sacrifice for our sins on this mountain in the Old Testament temple. He'll provide a sacrifice for our sins on this mountain in the death of Christ, who carries the wood of the cross to the place of sacrifice. Now, the thing that amazes me in the story is having said that, it says in verse 9, when they reached the top of the mountain, Abraham bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. They laid the wood out, they prepared for the sacrifice, and Isaac submitted to this. 
Isaac was about 20 years old. He could have easily resisted a 120-year-old father. If nothing else, he could have outrun him. But he doesn't do that. Again, he becomes a picture of Christ. The son of the father, willingly bound with our sin, laid on the altar of the cross, Jesus is going to die in our place. He's going to do for us what he will not let Isaac do. He sets the stage. Abraham takes out the knife, probably wondering how in the world is God going to intervene. And suddenly, as he raises the knife, the Lord speaks to him from heaven. As the Lord speaks, verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. God always called people by their name. He never says, hey you. It's always Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham. God knows your name. God knows who you are when he calls you. Abraham, great father. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For I know now that you fear God. Becomes obvious in the story the angel of the Lord is the Lord Himself. When the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's not just an ordinary messenger angel. It's an appearance of God. When He speaks, God speaks. When He hears, God hears. Uh, When He responds, God responds. It's Christ Himself, the second person of the Trinity. You say, how do you know that? Because the angel of the Lord took visible appearances in the Old Testament. And the Bible says in the New Testament, nobody at any time has ever seen God. Nobody sees God the Father. Nobody sees God the Spirit. You see the evidence of His work, but you don't see Him. The only member of the Godhead that takes a visible appearance is Christ. In the Old Testament, we call those a Christophany, a temporary appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. When He'll say, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. When people will fall down and worship Him, this is not an ordinary angel because angels will say, don't worship me. Only worship God. But the angel of the Lord receives worship just as Jesus receives worship in the New Testament. Jesus shouts to you that He's God incarnate, God in the flesh, God on foot in the New Testament. But prior to being born as the baby in the box at Bethlehem, Christ appears temporarily in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and then disappears. The angel of the Lord speaks, God speaks, God hears, and God says to him, don't do it. Abraham looks around and he sees a ram, a male sheep, caught by its horns in a thicket of trees. And God says to him, sacrifice that ram instead. Let Isaac go, put the ram on the altar, and sacrifice the ram. I will provide. Jehovah provides. The ram is sacrificed. Isaac is let go. Now, think of this for a moment. If the angel of the Lord is Christ himself, it's Jesus yelling from heaven 2,000 years before the cross, don't do it. I'll do it. Don't throw your hand of judgment against your son. 
but I will go to the cross. I'll come to Mount Moriah. I'll come to Golgotha. I'll come to this place. And the hand of God the Father will be raised against me, and there will be nobody to tell him, don't do it, and his hand will fall on me on the cross. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The sinless Son of God dies in our place. That's the message of the gospel. He rises from the dead, and He offers us salvation based on what He did for us. Believing in Jesus is not just simply saying, well, I believe He existed or He lived or He was a good teacher. He was all of that. It's believing that when He died on the cross, He died in my place. The judgment of God against my sin landed on Him on the cross, and I received the forgiveness of God and the grace of God because Jehovah provided the Lamb in the person of Christ. Jehovah took my place. Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. And when we understand that, and we really clearly understand the good news of the gospel, that's what changes people's lives. It's that message of forgiveness that transforms. I had the privilege last winter of serving as uh, a biblical uh, theological advisor uh, to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey for the TV series A.D. The last episode out of 12 episodes runs tonight on ABC at 9 o'clock. If you've watched any of those episodes, they're trying to make the book of Acts in the New Testament come to life for a 21st century audience. And one of the characters uh, that you have learned to hate, if you've watched that, is Cornelius, the Roman soldier. But in tonight's episode... Cornelius gets saved. Uh, Tonight's the night when Peter goes to his house and gives him the gospel, and he who needs forgiveness receives it from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you've watched the episodes last week, the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. Uh, The couple of weeks earlier, uh, Paul got saved after persecuting Christians, etc. All these people come to understand that the gospel message applied to them back in the first century. And as they pass the message on to others, century after century, it reaches us today in the 21st century. So my challenge for us on Father's Day is simply this. First of all, if you're going to be a dad who makes a difference, there has to come a point at which you know that you know that Jesus is your Savior, that you've put your faith and trust in Him. You're not just saying, well, I'm doing the best I can. Hey, God did the best He could when He sent Jesus to the cross to die for your sins. He was sinless. You're never going to do better than that. Uh, You're not just trying to make it. You've come to a point of faith and surrender. Abraham had surrendered himself to God. That's why he was willing to surrender his son Isaac. I think he knew all along, I'm not really going to kill him. I'm not going to have to. God will provide The lad and I will return. Uh, Let me give you three simple principles of application out of this. Number one, you've got to understand your children really belong to God. Yes, you and I have a responsibility to set the right example, to set the right influence, but God gave them to you, and God can take them at any point in time. They really belong to God. 
First time Jeff showed up in our lives uh, in the basketball arena at Liberty University with this big grin on his face. I thought, Christy's gone. Uh, I can see it. She's had all these boys. They come, they go. Not this guy. He's going to stay. Uh, I can just tell it. Uh, and uh, he's going to take her off to Miami where he's from. And he did. And then they turned right around and moved to Georgia. Uh, thank God they were at least halfway back to Virginia. Uh, but uh, at that point, she belonged to God, not us anymore. In a sense, she belongs to Him. But she really belongs to God. And that's true of every one of your children. No matter what your hopes and dreams and plans are for them, ultimately the purpose of God will take over. And you've got to understand, they're really God's children. They're entrusted to me. And if they're entrusted to me, it makes a difference what I do with them. Secondly, the father has to be the leader in worship. What did Abraham tell the two servants? The boy and I are going to go over there and do what? Worship. We're going to worship God. That means as a dad, you need to be the spiritual leader in the home. Not mom, not the kids, not uh, uh, just the church. The church is here to help and assist. You need to be the guy that prays. They need to hear you pray out loud. Uh, They need to see you read the Bible. They need to see you make spiritual decisions. You're setting an image, an example, and an influence on your kids. And they tend to repeat who you are and what you are. Whatever is the characteristic of your life tends to be the characteristic of their life. I watch this in my grandson, J.D. Uh, He likes to hunt and fish and drive four-wheelers because Jeff does. Uh, He does what his father does. Uh, he follows that example. Now, Jeff doesn't sit him down, I don't think, and say, you've got to drive four-wheelers whether you like it or not. Uh, you've got to go hunt and fish whether you like it or not. No, I think he automatically sees that example in his dad, but he also sees a spiritual example. So you have to ask yourself, what do my kids see in me that they respect enough to want to emulate that, to want to follow that example? They're really God's children, but I'm to be the leader in worship. My wife can encourage that, can help with that, but I shouldn't be sitting there saying, your mother does the praying. I do the other stuff. Uh, Ah, mow the lawn, okay. I hope I can grow up to mow the lawn one day. Uh, That's probably not going to get it done. Number three, faith believes no matter what. Abraham kept believing God, trusting God, trusting God in spite of the circumstances, in spite of his own mistakes, in spite of his own limitations, you keep believing God will keep the promise. And ultimately, we look back on this story 4,000 years later, Abraham becomes the example of faith. Isaac follows the faith of his father, passes that on to his children, And he becomes the ancestor, the forefather of the Jewish people. The ancestor of Jesus who descends through the line of Abraham and the line of Isaac. Ask yourself, who's going to descend from me? Uh, If the Lord hasn't come back in a hundred years, what are my descendants going to be thinking, doing, and believing? And what did I do to make a difference in them in the years to come? Christy told you a little bit about our family. 
they're a wild bunch. Grew up in Detroit, no Bible, no Jesus, no God in our home. When my relatives came over, everybody got drunk, got in a fight, and it turned into a mess. My mother would say, oh, your uncle's coming tonight. I was like, oh, no, not him. Ah, he'll wreck the place. Almost all of them died lost. Lived hard, died hard. In my opinion, lived stupid and died stupid. My parents, fortunately, finally came to faith. And Jesus began to change everything because a kid made a decision. Well, I'm challenging you. You're going to live smart, die smart, or live stupid and die stupid. You live smart, you die with integrity, you die being able to say one day, I did the best I could to give my family to God, to lead the way. I can't fix everything. I can't resolve every problem, but I can do what I know God wants me to do. Now, I'm old enough to tell you all, that's what you need to do. I know on Father's Day, we want to say, you're great, you're wonderful, we love you, we appreciate you. But after Father's Day is over, do your kids really believe that? And do they really think that? Well, they do if you're doing the right thing. If you're a man of your word, a man of honesty, a man of integrity, a man who's able to say, I failed, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, or I made what I thought was the right decision, and we're going to stick with it, etc. Be the man God wants you to be. Abraham got there, but it took him over 100 years. You and I don't have 100 years. We have to make the decision to say, that needs to be me, and it needs to be me right now. Let's pray. Dear God, we admit to you that being a father is not easy, uh, and that we've all made mistakes in the process, but I pray that you'd help us to realize that you're the ultimate father, our heavenly father. Jesus told you to, told us to call you that. And so we come to you, our heavenly father, today and say, help us to be better husbands, better dads, to be men who want our children to follow our example, who will lead in worship, who will trust you no matter what the circumstances are, Give us grace for the journey and hope for the future and help us to be able to look back one day and see your blessing in our family because we made the right choices. We wait before God for a moment in prayer. You let Him speak to your heart. Maybe God's been tugging at your heart for the last months, years, whatever, or even the last few weeks about this whole issue of faith never come to a point of personal faith, an encounter with God where you said, yes, I will trust you. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll put my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross. No better Father's Day gift could you give your kids and your family than to come to faith to Christ today and say yes to Him. And if God's tugging at your heart about that. I want to urge you right there at your seat. Open your heart to Him. Say, Lord Jesus, I really do believe you are who you said you were. You can do what you said you can do. 
and I believe you could save me and change me. Invite him to come into your life today. Pray that by faith. Pray it in Jesus' name. Pray it with the confidence of an amen. God will hear you. God will answer. And then you need to tell somebody about that decision. Think even on the Connect card. You can check a response in that direction. So others will pray for you and encourage you. For those of us that have already made that decision, I want to remind us there are a lot of other decisions we need to make in life. So I'm going to ask all the dads right now, if you would not just put your hands straight out, palms up. Would you do that? Every dad, put your hands straight out, palms up. And I want you to imagine for a moment, my children are in my hands, my wife, my family, and God, I, I am giving you afresh on this Father's Day that family, those children. I want it to be your family. I want those kids to be your kids. And if you really mean that, would you just lift your hands straight up right now? Lord, they're yours. I'm visualizing this because I really believe this. I'm making that commitment to you. They're yours. Father, bless the dads today. Help us to have courage and strength to make the right choices, the right decisions. And when we're off track, to get back on track. Bless our children because of our example. And may this Father's Day be a special day where we sense that you've lifted us up. You've lifted up Christ on the cross on our behalf so that you might lift us up as the children of God. But we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.